Chapter Eleven, Part Two of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Eleven, Part Two. The following discussion on the climate of the southern parts of the continent with relation to its productions, on the snow line, on the extraordinarily low descent of the glaciers, and on the zone of perpetual congelation in the Antarctic islands, may be passed over by anyone not interested in these curious subjects, or the final recapitulation alone may be read. I shall, however, here give only an abstract, and must refer for details to the thirteenth chapter and the appendix of the former edition of this work. On the climate and productions of Tierra del Fuego and of the southwest coast, the following table gives the mean temperature of Tierra del Fuego, the Falkland Islands, and, for comparison, that of Dublin. Tierra del Fuego, latitude 53 degrees 38 minutes south, summer temperature 50, winter temperature 33.08, mean of summer and winter 41.54. Falkland Islands, Latitude, 51 degrees 38 minutes south. Summer temperature, 51. Winter temperature, not given. Mean of summer and winter, not given. Dublin. Latitude, 53 degrees 21 minutes north. Summer temperature, 59.54. Winter temperature, 39.2. Mean of summer and winter, 49.37. Hence we see that the central part of Tierra del Fuego is colder in winter, and no less than 9.5 degrees less hot in summer, than Dublin. According to von Buch, the mean temperature of July, not the hottest month in the year, at Saltenfjord in Norway, is as high as 57.8 degrees, and this place is actually 13 degrees nearer the pole than Port Famine. Footnote with regard to Tierra del Fuego, the results are deduced from the observations of Captain King, Geographical Journal, 1830, and those taken on board the Beagle. For the Falkland Islands, I am indebted to Captain Sullivan for the mean of the mean temperature, reduced from careful observations at midnight, 8 a.m., noon, and 8 p.m., of the three hottest months, that is, December, January, and February. The temperature of Dublin is taken from Barton. End footnote. Inhospitable as this climate appears to our feelings, evergreen trees flourish luxuriantly under it. Hummingbirds may be seen sucking the flowers, and parrots feeding on the seeds of the winter's bark in latitude 55 degrees south. I have already remarked to what a degree the sea swarms with living creatures, and the shells, such as the patellae, fissurelle, chitons, and barnacles, according to Mr. G. B. Sorby, are of a much larger size and of a more vigorous growth than the analogous species in the northern hemisphere. A large voluta is abundant in southern Tierra de Fuego and the Falkland Islands. At Bahia Blanca, in latitude 39 degrees south, the most abundant shells were three species of oliva, one of large size, one or two volutas, and a terebra. Now these are amongst the best characterized tropical forms, it is doubtful whether even one small species of oliva exists on the southern shores of Europe, and there are no species of the two other genera. If a geologist were to find in latitude 39 degrees on the coast of Portugal a bed containing numerous shells belonging to three species of oliva, to a voluta and terebra, he would probably assert that the climate at the period of their existence must have been tropical. But judging from South America, 
such an inference might be erroneous. The equable, humid, and windy climate of Terra do Fuego extends, with only a small increase of heat, for many degrees along the west coast of the continent. The forests for six hundred miles northward of Cape Horn have a very similar aspect. As a proof of the equable climate, even for three hundred or four hundred miles still further northward, I may mention that in Chile, corresponding in latitude with the northern parts of Spain, the peach seldom produces fruit, while strawberries and apples thrive to perfection. Even the crops of barley and wheat are often brought into the houses to be dried and ripened. At Valdivia, in the same latitude of forty degrees with Madrid, grapes and figs ripen, but are not common. Olives seldom ripen even partially, and oranges not at all. These fruits, in corresponding latitudes in Europe, are well known to succeed to perfection, and even in this continent, at the Rio Negro, under nearly the same parallel with Valdivia, sweet potatoes, convolvulus, are cultivated, and grapes, figs, olives, oranges, water, and musk melons produce abundant fruit. Although the humid and equable climate of Chiloe, and of the coast northward and southward of it, is so unfavorable to our fruits, yet the native forests, from latitude 45 to 38 degrees, almost rival in luxuriance those of the glowing intertropical regions. Stately trees of many kinds, with smooth and highly colored barks, are loaded by parasitical monocotyledonous plants. Large and elegant ferns are numerous, and arborescent grasses entwine the trees into one entangled mass to the height of thirty or forty feet above the ground. Palm trees grow in latitude thirty-seven degrees, an arborescent grass, very like bamboo, in forty degrees, and another closely allied kind, of great length but not erect, flourishes even as far south as forty-five degrees south. An equable climate, evidently due to the large area of sea compared with the land, seems to extend over the greater part of the southern hemisphere. And, as a consequence, the vegetation partakes of a semi-tropical character. Tree ferns thrive luxuriantly in Van Diemen's land, latitude 45 degrees, and I measured one trunk no less than six feet in circumference. An arborescent fern was found by Forster in New Zealand in 46 degrees, where orchideous plants are parasitical on the trees. In the Auckland Islands, ferns, according to Dr. Diefenbach, have trunks so thick and high that they may be almost called tree ferns, and in these islands, and even as far south as latitude 55 degrees in the Macquarie Islands, parrots abound. Footnote. See the German translation of this journal, and for the other facts, Mr. Brown's appendix to Flinders' voyage. End footnote. On the height of the snow line, and on the descent of the glaciers in South America. For the detailed authorities for the following table, I must refer to the former edition. Table With three columns, latitude, height and feet of snow line, and observer. Latitude, equatorial region, mean result, height, 15,748 feet, observer Humboldt. Bolivia, latitude 16 to 18 degrees south, 17,000 feet. Observer Pentland. Central Chile, latitude 33 degrees south, 14,500 to 15,000 feet. Observer Gillies and the author. Chile, latitude 41 to 43 degrees south, 6,000 feet. Observers, officers of the Beagle and the author. Terra do Fuego, 54 degrees south, height, 3,500 to 4,000 feet, Observer King. 
as the height of the plain of perpetual snow seems chiefly to be determined by the extreme heat of the summer rather than by the mean temperature of the year we ought not to be surprised at its descent in the strait of magellan where the summer is so cool to only three thousand five hundred or four thousand feet above the level of the sea although in norway we must travel to between latitude sixty seven and seventy degrees north that is about fourteen degrees nearer the pole to meet with perpetual snow at this low level the difference in height namely about nine thousand feet between the snow line on the cordillera behind chiloe with its highest points ranging from only five thousand six hundred to seven thousand five hundred feet and in central chile a distance of only nine degrees of latitude is truly wonderful footnote on the cordillera of central chile i believe the snow line varies exceedingly in height in different summers i was assured that during one very dry and long summer all the snow disappeared from Aconcagua, although it attains the prodigious height of twenty three thousand feet it is probable that much of the snow at these great heights is evaporated rather than thawed. End footnote. The land from the southward of Chiloe to near Concepcion, latitude 37 degrees, is hidden by one dense forest dripping with moisture. The sky is cloudy, and we have seen how badly the fruits of southern Europe succeed. In central Chile, on the other hand, a little northward of Concepcion, the sky is generally clear, rain does not fall for the seven summer months, and southern European fruits succeed admirably, and even the sugar cane has been cultivated. Footnote. Mears Chile, Volume 1, page 415. It is said that the sugar cane grew at Ingenio, latitude 32 to 33 degrees, but not in sufficient quantity to make the manufacture profitable. In the valley of Quiota, south of Ingenio, I saw some large date palm trees. End footnote no doubt the plain of perpetual snow undergoes the above remarkable flexure of nine thousand feet unparalleled in other parts of the world not far from the latitude of concepcion where the land ceases to be covered with forest trees for trees in south america indicate a rainy climate and rain a clouded sky and little heat in summer the descent of glaciers to the sea must i conceive mainly depend subject of course to a proper supply of snow in the upper region on the lowness of the line of perpetual snow on steep mountains near the coast. As the snow line is so low in Tierra del Fuego, we might have expected that many of the glaciers would have reached the sea. Nevertheless, I was astonished when I first saw a range, only from 3,000 to 4,000 feet in height, in the latitude of Cumberland, with every valley filled with streams of ice descending to the sea coast. Almost every arm of the sea, which penetrates to the interior higher chain, not only in Tierra del Fuego, but on the coast for 650 miles northwards, is terminated by, quote, tremendous and astonishing glaciers, end quote, as described by one of the officers on the survey. Great masses of ice frequently fall from these icy cliffs, and the crash reverberates like the broad side of a man-of-war through the lonely channels. These falls, as noticed in the last chapter, produce great waves which break on the adjoining coasts, it is known that earthquakes frequently cause masses of earth to fall from sea cliffs. How terrific, then, will be the effect of a severe shock, and such occur here, on a body like a glacier, already in motion, and traversed by fissures. Footnote. Bulkley's and Cummins' faithful narrative of the loss of the wager. The earthquake happened August 25, 1741. End footnote. 
I can readily believe that the water would be fairly beaten back out of the deepest channel, and then, returning with an overwhelming force, would whirl about huge masses of rock like so much chaff. In Eris Sound, in the latitude of Paris, there are immense glaciers, and yet the loftiest neighboring mountain is only 6,200 feet high. In this sound, about fifty icebergs were seen at one time floating outwards, and one of them must have been at least 168 feet in total height. Some of the icebergs were loaded with blocks of no inconsiderable size, of granite and other rocks, different from the clay slate of the surrounding mountains. The glacier furthest from the pole, surveyed during the voyages of the Adventure and Beagle, is in latitude 46 degrees 15 minutes in the Gulf of Peñas. It is fifteen miles long, and in one part seven broad, and descends to the sea coast. But even a few miles northward of this glacier, in Laguna de San Rafael, some Spanish missionaries encountered, quote, many icebergs, some great, some small, and others middle-sized, in a narrow arm of the sea, on the twenty-second of the month corresponding with our June, and in a latitude corresponding with that of the Lake of Geneva. In Europe, the most southern glacier which comes down to the sea is met with, according to von Buch, on the coast of Norway, in latitude 67 degrees. Now, this is more than 20 degrees of latitude, or 1,230 miles, nearer the pole than the Laguna de San Rafael. The position of the glaciers at this place, and in the Gulf of Peñas, may be put even in a more striking point of view, for they descend to the sea coast within 7.5 degrees of latitude, or 450 miles, of a harbour where three species of oliver, a voluta, and a terebra are the commonest shells, within less than nine degrees from where palms grow, within 4.5 degrees of a region where the jaguar and puma range over the plains, less than 2.5 degrees from arborescent grasses, and, looking to the westward in the same hemisphere, less than two degrees from orchideous parasites, and within a single degree of tree ferns, these facts are of high geological interest with respect to the climate of the northern hemisphere at the period when boulders were transported. I will not here detail how simply the theory of icebergs being charged with fragments of rock explain the origin and position of the gigantic boulders of eastern Terra del Fuego, on the high plain of Santa Cruz, and on the island of Chiloe. In Terra del Fuego, the greater number of boulders lie on the lines of old sea channels, now converted into dry valleys by the elevation of the land. They are associated with a great unstratified formation of mud and sand, containing rounded and angular fragments of all sizes, which has originated in the repeated ploughing up of the sea-bottom by the stranding of icebergs, and by the matter transported on them. Few geologists now doubt that those erratic boulders which lie near lofty mountains have been pushed forward by the glaciers themselves, and that those distant from mountains, and embedded in subaqueous deposits, have been conveyed thither either on icebergs or frozen in coast ice. The connection between the transportal of boulders and the presence of ice in some form is strikingly shown by their geographical distribution over the earth. In South America they are not found further than 48 degrees of latitude, measured from the southern pole. In North America it appears that the limit of their transportal extends to 53.5 degrees from the northern pole but in Europe to not more than 40 degrees of latitude, measured from the same point. On the other hand, in the intertropical parts of America, Asia, and Africa, they have never been observed, nor at the Cape of Good Hope, nor in Australia. Footnote. 
I have given details, the first I believe published, on this subject in the first edition and in the appendix to it. I have there shown that the apparent exceptions to the absence of erratic boulders in certain countries are due to erroneous observations. Several statements there given I have since found confirmed by various authors. End footnote. On the climate and productions of the Antarctic Islands, considering the rankness of the vegetation in Cerro de Fuego and on the coast northward of it, the condition of the islands south and southwest of America is truly surprising. Sandwich Island, in the latitude of the north part of Scotland, was found by Cook during the hottest month of the year, covered many fathoms thick with everlasting snow, and there seems to be scarcely any vegetation. Georgia, an island ninety-six miles long and ten broad, in the latitude of Yorkshire, in the very height of summer, is in a manner wholly covered with frozen snow. It can boast only of moss, some tufts of grass, and wild burnet. It has only one land bird, Anthus corandera, yet Iceland, which is ten degrees nearer the pole, has, according to Mackenzie, fifteen land birds. The South Shetland Islands, in the same latitude as the southern half of Norway, possess only some lichens, moss, and a little grass and Lieutenant Kendall found the bay in which he was at anchor beginning to freeze at the period corresponding with our 8th of September. The soil here consists of ice and volcanic ashes interstratified, and at a little depth beneath the surface it must remain perpetually congealed, for Lieutenant Kendall found the body of a foreign sailor which had long been buried, with the flesh and all the features perfectly preserved. It is a singular fact that on the two great continents in the northern hemisphere, but not in the broken land of Europe between them, we have the zone of perpetually frozen undersoil in a low latitude, namely in 56 degrees in North America at the depth of 3 feet, and in 62 degrees in Siberia at a depth of 12 to 15 feet, as the result of a directly opposite condition of things to those of the southern hemisphere. On the northern continents, the winter is rendered excessively cold by the radiation from a large area of land into a clear sky, nor is it moderated by the warmth-bringing currents of the sea. The short summer, on the other hand, is hot. In the southern ocean, the winter is not so excessively cold, but the summer is far less hot, for the clouded sky seldom allows the sun to warm the ocean, itself a bad absorbent of heat and hence the mean temperature of the year which regulates the zone of perpetually congealed undersoil is low. It is evident that the rank vegetation, which does not so much require heat as it does protection from intense cold, would approach much nearer to this zone of perpetual congelation under the equable climate of the southern hemisphere than under the extreme climate of the northern continents. The case of the sailor's body perfectly preserved in the icy soil of the South Shetland Islands latitude 62 to 63 degrees south, in a rather lower latitude than that latitude 64 degrees north, under which Pallas found the frozen rhinoceros in Siberia, is very interesting. Although it is a fallacy, as I have endeavoured to show in a former chapter, to suppose that the larger quadrupeds require a luxuriant vegetation for their support, nevertheless it is important to find in the South Shetland Islands a frozen undersoil within 360 miles of the forest-clad islands near Cape Horn, where, as far as the bulk of vegetation is concerned, any number of great quadrupeds might be supported. The perfect preservation of the carcasses of the Siberian elephants and rhinoceroses is certainly one of the most wonderful facts in geology, but independently of the imagined difficulty of supplying them with food from the adjoining countries, 
The whole case is not, I think, so perplexing as it has generally been considered. The plains of Siberia, like those of the Pampas, appear to have been formed under the sea, into which rivers brought down the bodies of many animals. Of the greater number of these, only the skeletons have been preserved, but of others the perfect carcass. Now, it is known that in the shallow sea on the Arctic coast of America the bottom freezes, and does not thaw in spring so soon as the surface of the land. Moreover, at greater depths, where the bottom of the sea does not freeze, the mud a few feet beneath the top layer might remain even in summer below thirty-two degrees, as in the case on the land with the soil at a depth of a few feet. At still greater depths, the temperature of the mud and water would probably not be low enough to preserve the flesh, and hence carcasses drifted beyond the shallow parts near an arctic coast would have only their skeletons preserved. Now, in the extreme northern parts of Siberia, bones are infinitely numerous, so that even islets are said to be almost composed of them. And those islets lie no less than ten degrees of latitude north of the place where Pallas found the frozen rhinoceros. On the other hand, a carcass washed by a flood into a shallow part of the Arctic Sea would be preserved for an indefinite period if it were soon afterwards covered with mud sufficiently thick to prevent the heat of the summer water penetrating to it and if, when the sea-bottom was upraised into land, the covering was sufficiently thick to prevent the heat of the summer air and sun thawing and corrupting it. Recapitulation I will recapitulate the principal facts with regard to the climate, ice action and organic productions of the southern hemisphere, transposing the places in imagination to Europe, with which we are so much better acquainted. Then, near Lisbon, the commonest seashells, namely three species of oliver, a voluta and a terebra would have a tropical character in the southern provinces of france magnificent forests entwined by arborescent grasses and with the trees loaded with parasitical plants would hide the face of the land the puma and the jaguar would haunt the pyrenees in the latitude of mont blanc but on an island as far westward as central north america tree ferns and parasitical orchideae would thrive amidst the thick wood even as far north as central Denmark, hummingbirds would be seen fluttering about delicate flowers, and parrots feeding amidst the evergreen woods, and in the sea there we should have a voluta, and all the shells of large size and vigorous growth. Nevertheless, on some islands only 360 miles northward of our new Cape Horn in Denmark, a carcass buried in the soil, or if washed into a shallow sea and covered up with mud, would be preserved perpetually frozen. If some bold navigator attempted to penetrate northward of these islands, he would run a thousand dangers amidst gigantic icebergs, on some of which he would see great blocks of rock borne far away from their original site. Another island, of large size, in the latitude of southern Scotland, but twice as far to the west, would be almost wholly covered with everlasting snow, and would have each bay terminated by ice cliffs, whence great masses would be yearly detached. This island would boast only of a little moss, grass, and burnet, and a titlark would be its only land inhabitant. From our new Cape Horn in Denmark, a chain of mountains, scarcely half the height of the Alps, would run in a straight line due southward, and on its western flank every deep creek of the sea or fjord would end in bold and astonishing glaciers. These lonely channels would frequently reverberate with the falls of ice, and so often would great waves rush along their coasts. 
numerous icebergs, some as tall as cathedrals, and occasionally loaded with no inconsiderable blocks of rock, would be stranded on the outlying islets. At intervals, violent earthquakes would shoot prodigious masses of ice into the waters below. Lastly, some missionaries attempting to penetrate a long arm of the sea would behold the not lofty surrounding mountains sending down their many grand icy streams to the sea-coast, and their progress in the boats would be checked by the innumerable floating icebergs, some small and some great. And this would have occurred on our 22nd of June, and where the Lake of Geneva is now spread out. Footnote in the former edition and appendix, I have given some facts on the transportal of erratic boulders and icebergs in the Atlantic Ocean. This subject has lately been treated excellently by Mr. Hayes in the Boston Journal, volume 4, page 426. The author does not appear aware of a case published by me, Geographical Journal, volume 9, page 528, of a gigantic boulder embedded in an iceberg in the Antarctic Ocean, almost certainly one hundred miles distant from any land, and perhaps much more distant. In the appendix I have discussed at length the probability, at that time hardly thought of, of icebergs when stranded grooving and polishing rocks like glaciers. This is now a very commonly received opinion, and I cannot still avoid the suspicion that it is applicable even to such cases as that of the Jura. Dr. Richardson has assured me that the icebergs off North America push before them pebbles and sand, and leave the submarine rocky flats quite bare. It is hardly possible to doubt that such ledges must be polished and scored in the direction of the set of the prevailing currents. Since writing that appendix, I have seen in North Wales the adjoining action of glaciers and floating icebergs. End footnote. End chapter 11, part 2